Open with me to the Psalms once again, and this time to Psalm 143. Psalm 143. This psalm is a psalm of David, and it reads like this. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. Answer me in your faithfulness, in your righteousness, and do not enter into judgment with your servant. For in your sight no man living is righteous. For the enemy has persecuted my soul, he has crushed my life to the ground, he has made me dwell in dark places like those who have long been dead. Therefore my spirit is overwhelmed within me, my heart is appalled within me. I remember the days of old, I meditate on all your doings, I muse on the work of your hands, I stretch out my hands to you, my soul longs for you as a parched land." Answer me quickly, O Lord, my spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, or I will become like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear your loving kindness in the morning, for I trust in you. Teach me the way in which I should walk, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. I take refuge in you. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For the sake of your name, O Lord, revive me. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your loving kindness, cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul. For I am your servant. So, Father, I pray now with Charles Wesley, my gracious master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth, and particularly tonight in this congregation, the honors of your name. I pray that in the name of your Son. Amen. Now the psalm in which we find ourselves this evening is, you may have already noticed, in many ways similar to the last two psalms at which we have looked on the last two Wednesday evenings, Psalms 140 and 142. This psalm, like those, was written during a season of persecution in David's life. Verse 3, For the enemy has persecuted my soul, he has crushed my life to the ground. Same sort of situation as we've seen the last two weeks. This psalm also, like the others, is a cry for deliverance, as we've seen the last two weeks as well. Hear my prayer, O Lord, verse 1, give ear. To my, to my supplications. Verse 9, deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. I take refuge in you. And then Psalm 143, like Psalm 140 at least, also contains a plea for God's judgment on David's enemies. In verse 12, in your loving kindness, cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul. And so all three of these last Psalms that we've looked at run along similar lines. All three of them were written in similar situations when David was being hounded by his enemies, uh, among whom Saul and Absalom come to mind most readily. And yet, each of these Psalms is unique. Each of them, with all their similarities, is included in the Psalter for a reason. Each of them has something distinctive to contribute to our understanding of suffering and persecution to our understanding of prayer, and to our understanding of the God to whom we pray. 
And in fact, one thing that's unique in this psalm as compared to the other recent two is how David prays for wisdom in verses 8 and 10. He prays again in this psalm, yes, for deliverance and for God's judgment, both of which we've seen already in the last couple of weeks. But tonight he also prays something new, namely that God would teach him how to carry himself in the midst of those trials, that God would show him what it looks like to do his will and to walk wisely in times of trial. Verse 8, middle of the verse, teach me the way in which I should walk, for to you I lift up my soul. Verse 10, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. And I submit to you just right off the bat this morning that that's a good thing to notice in these in this psalm, it's a good way to pray. It's right to pray for deliverance, and there may sometimes even be occasions to pray for God's judgment on our persecutors. It's right, in other words, to pray about our circumstances and to pray about our antagonists. But it's also right when we are suffering to pray about God's dealing with ourselves, that we would walk wisely, verse 8, and obediently, verse 10a, and steadily, verse 10c, in the midst of our trials. And so I commend these sorts of prayers to you right here at the outset tonight, to pray both when you suffer and at every other juncture of your life as well. Teach me the way in which I should walk. Teach me to do your will. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. But then also tonight, what I want you to notice in Psalm 143 as unique, at least among the three psalms that we've given our attention to most recently, is how this psalm in particular gives a good deal of attention to the question of why. Hear my prayer, O Lord, verse 1. That's the great cry of this psalm all throughout. Hear my prayer for deliverance. Hear my prayer for judgment. Hear my prayer for wisdom. Give ear to my supplications. But why? Why does David hope God will hear? To what does David appeal in his wrestling with God in this psalm as grounds for God listening to him? As grounds for God doing him good? As reasons why God should hear and should answer? That's what we need to take note of tonight. And allow me just to give you a quick run-through to demonstrate the reasons why David appeals to God and that they do form a pattern throughout this psalm. David is constantly giving God reasons why he should hear. So, verse 1, Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my supplications for, verse 3, or because, and then he gives a reason why God should hear him. There in verse 3. Or then look at verse 7. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me. Or, and then he gives a rationale why God should answer him. Or verse 8. Let me hear your loving kindness in the morning for, and then another reason why God should help him. The middle of verse 8 Teach me in the way I should walk for, and then yet another reason why God should hear his prayer. And then the same thing in verse 10. Teach me to do your will for, and a reason why God 
should hear him. And there are other examples of this as well, which we will see. With the long and short of it being that David is wrestling with God in prayer. David is asking God to hear, verse 1, and then he's list, listing throughout the psalm several reasons why God should hear and why God should answer. David is wrestling with God in prayer. He's asking him to hear, and then throughout the psalm, he's listing reasons why God should and why God should answer. And I find this very instructive. Indeed, I wonder if it ever occurred to you to reason with God in prayer like David does here, to appeal in your prayers to a set of whys and wherefores that would move God to hear you and that propound the reasons why it would be good for him to answer you. Now, there are wrong ways about, that we can go about doing this. For instance, we can appeal to the wrong reasons why we think God should hear us. Selfish reasons, foolish reasons, proud reasons. We could also appeal to God in such a way so as almost to shake our fists in his face. Like, you better hear me. That would be wrong. Or we could go astray in our wrestling with God because we presume that since God is moved by our reasons, that he somehow needs the reasons reminded to him, elsewise he won't remember to act. That God somehow, because he's moved by our reasons, needs his arm twisted or his attention focused or his conscience appealed to or his intelligence informed of our plight before he will hear us and answer And we need to be careful of that unnecessary leap before we begin tonight. It may at first appear to be logic, but it actually doesn't follow. Because a father can have a good gift already prepared for his son, sitting in the closet, wrapped and ready to go, and yet that father may still have reasons for wanting the son to ask for the gift, and even maybe for wanting the son to ask for the gift for the right reasons. So that when the son asks, and when he appeals to certain reasons why he hopes that his father will grant his request, he's not telling the father something he didn't know. He's not twisting his father's arm to give him something that he didn't want to give him or hadn't thought of. Nor are the reasons that the son presents as to why the father should grant his request somehow tickling the father's ears or playing on his heartstrings so as to coax him out of his armchair to do for his son what he had not originally planned to do. The father already has the gift prepared, remember? And so the son's need to appeal and to appeal to a good list of reasons why the father should grant his request is more for the son's benefit than for the father's, so that the son learns some things about his father and perhaps about himself as well. And so keep that in mind tonight. The appeals that David, David makes, the reasons he gives, in other words, as to why God should hear his prayers, and the reasons we will give in our own prayers as we learn for this psalm, are not included in the Psalter so that we will know how to twist God's arm and get him to do more for us than he would otherwise be prepared to do if we didn't understand the logic. God is prepared already to bless us beyond what we even know, and he already knows the reasons that we're going to see tonight why he's prepared to bless us. 
But in our study of this psalm and in our own wrestling with God after its example, God wants us to learn the reasons for ourselves why he hears and why he answers the prayers of his people. So then, back to our primary train of thought tonight. David's prayer, here in Psalm 143, demonstrates that there are truths, there are circumstances, there are reasons to which we can and should appeal when we're wrestling with God for answers to our prayers. There are things we can say like, God, because of this, answer me. In light of this, God, answer me. And I want to try to comb those reasons out tonight and hold them up for us to see so that we might know how to wrestle with God in prayer too. And while, of course, David's prayers are prayed and his wrestling is wrestled and his reasons are given in the midst of a season of persecution, I think we won't be off base tonight in considering David's reasons why God should answer him. I don't think we'll be off base if we apply David's reasons not only to situations of persecution, but to other kinds of supplication, to other kinds of prayer as well. So that while we do need to recognize that Psalm 143 is a prayer for persecution, we're not going to limit our application tonight to that one particular Christian circumstance, but we're going to consider David's reasons in this psalm as the same reasons why God answers other kinds of prayer as well. And with all that in mind now, Let's begin combing the beach of this psalm, picking up the treasures of David's logic as to why he appeals to God to hear him, why he believes that God should answer him. And we're going to notice six items tonight, the first of which is simply that David appeals to God's nature. He appeals to God's nature. He appeals, to put it plainly, to who God is to what kind of God this is to whom he prays. Notice it in verse 1. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. Answer me in your faithfulness, in your righteousness. Did you hear it? David pleads God's help. He pleads God's answers. He requests God's ear in this matter, first of all, simply because God is, in fact, a faithful God, a righteous God, the kind of God, in other words, that you would expect to hear the cries of one of his hurting children. And then David does the same thing down in verse 10c through the beginning of verse 12. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For the sake of your name, O Lord, revive me. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your loving kindness, cut off my enemies. So did you hear one of the same two attributes of God from verse 1 brought into the conversation again as a reason why David appeals to God to answer? Because God is righteous, verse 11b. And then David also mentions that God is a God of loving kindness there in verse 12, and that that's a reason why he should answer David's prayer. And he mentions the goodness of the Spirit at the end of verse 10, the goodness of God. And then he mentions in the middle of it all there at the beginning of verse 11, God's very name, which is emblematic of all his character. 
So that what David is saying in this portion near the end of the psalm and in the great appeal at the beginning of the psalm, what David is doing in both of these places is simply appealing to God to hear, to answer, to deliver based simply on who God is. You are the righteous God. You are the God of faithfulness. You are the God of loving kindness. Your spirit is good. And therefore, because of who you are, because of all these benevolent traits of your being, lead me, revive me, bring my soul out of trouble, cut off my enemies, answer me, hear me, give ear to my supplications because of who you are. And I just commend this sort of praying to you, to remind your God and to remind yourself of what sort of God he is to whom you're praying. To remind yourself of his faithfulness so that you're all the more certain that he will fulfill his promise to answer his children's cries. To call to mind his loving kindness as David does here so that you do not doubt when you pray that the one to whom you pray wants the best for you in the thing about which you're praying. To recall his omnipresence perhaps, so that you're sure that he's not far off somewhere in some place from which he cannot see your plight, to think on his omnipotent strength so that you pray in confidence that nothing will be impossible with God. And on you could go with all of his other attributes, gaining more and more confidence in prayer as you lay more and more of who God is out before yourself and before him on the table. That's what David is doing here in verse 1 and then in verses 10, 11, and 12. He's appealing to the very nature of God, to who God is, to his attributes, so as to gain confidence that this is the sort of God, indeed, who really should, who really will hear my prayers. And I commend this sort of prayer to you, an appeal to God's very nature. But then secondly, we need to be sure to notice Not only that David appeals to God's nature, but also that David does not appeal to his own righteousness. David does not appeal to his own righteousness. Now, if you read through the book of Psalms, you will discover that there are places in which the psalmists do appeal to human righteousness or godliness or uprightness as a reason why God will and should answer the prayers of the godly. And so there is a way in which it can be right to appeal to God, seeking a specific answer in prayer because we have been doing the right thing by him. But that's not our subject matter tonight. Tonight, rather, we need to notice that in this psalm, David does not appeal to his own righteousness, but rather appeals to God in spite of his lack thereof. Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my supplications, answer me in your faithfulness, in your righteousness, verse 2, and do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no man living is righteous. In essence, what David is saying here is something like this, Lord, I need help, and yet, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I don't actually deserve help. I don't deserve an answer from you. I know I deserve judgment, as we all do at the end of the day. But Lord, would you hear me in spite of that? 
Instead of judgment, would you show me mercy? Instead of closing your ears to me, which is what my sins warrant, would you answer me instead, even in spite of myself? That's what David is praying here. And you know, that's part of what we mean, isn't it? Or at least it's part of what we should mean when we pray in Jesus' name. Part of what should be in our minds when we pray in Jesus' name is to remind God and to remind ourselves that we're not praying in our own names. That we are, like David in verse 2, not bringing our request to God based on our own merit or because we have been good girls and boys or because we somehow deserve to be heard. Because we know that we don't. We know, rather, that we deserve the judgment that David is hoping to avoid here in verse 2. We know that we're not righteous in God's sight. We know, as we saw recently, that apart from the intervention of Christ, our iniquities have made a separation between us and our God, and our sins have hidden his face from us so that he does not hear. And yet, when we pray in Jesus' name, we also know that Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. We know, in other words, that if we want to come near to God in prayer, while we cannot do it in our own names, yet it can be done marvelously in the name of Jesus, who shed his blood to bring us near. And so when we pray in Jesus' name, part of what we're saying is exactly what David says here in verse 2. Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no man living is righteous. Don't, don't hear my prayers. Don't respond to me right now based on my name. And then the other part is that when we pray in Jesus' name, we're also saying aloud what David knew, but was he doesn't express in words here, namely that while we are not righteous, while we do not deserve to be heard, verse 2, we know that there has been a lamb slain to cover our sins and to bring us in the presence of God in spite of them. And David, though he doesn't mention it specifically here, is appealing in verses 1 and 2 to the slain lamb, to the merciful God who has made a way even for sinners like himself to draw near and to receive blessing rather than judgment. And I wonder if... That's how you appeal to God when you pray. If you really believe that you can appeal to God on this basis. I wonder if the gospel of Jesus Christ, the wonder of the lamb that was slain, that brings even sinners into God's presence for blessing rather than judgment, I wonder if that good news enables you to pray like David, even when you know you don't deserve to. Brothers and sisters, this is the only way to pray. Even if you think you do deserve to pray because you've had a good day, you really don't. As David says here, in God's sight, no man living is righteous. The only way to pray is to ask God for mercy and to come in the name of Jesus. Because whatever those passages mean that appeal to God to hear our prayers because we are the godly, they do not mean that we are godly enough such that if our godliness was the ultimate ground of our appeal, God would hear us because of it. No one is that godly, verse 2. And so we must all pray at root level, not with appeal to our own righteousness, not with appeal to our own name, but to a righteousness and a name not our own. The righteousness in the name of Christ. The righteousness of Christ credited to our account based on, Simply 
on faith. Here's the ultimate appeal to God in prayer. The merits of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, the deservedness of Christ, the name of Christ. And so it's not just some mere pious add-on when we pray in Jesus' name. It's our only hope of actually being heard. And I hope you believe that. And I hope you're bold to pray because of it. So that's the second thing tonight. When David appeals to God to hear his prayer, he does not appeal based on his own righteousness. But then notice this also in the third place. David appeals for God to hear. He appeals for God to hear based on his own sufferings. David appeals to his own sufferings in the third place. Listen to the whole logic of verses 1 through 4 with me now. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. Answer me in your faithfulness, in your righteousness, and do not enter into judgment with your servant. For in your sight no man living is righteous. For the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in dark places like those who have long been dead. Therefore my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart is appalled within me. So, David has pled with God to answer his cries, verse 1, and he has asked him to do so, verse 2, in spite of David's own unrighteousness. And now this word for, at the beginning of verse 3, is going to introduce a reason why David hopes that God will hear and give ear and answer. God answer me, verse 1, and then this interlude in verse 2 about what he's not trusting in. But the main line of thinking is, God, answer me, verse 1, for or because the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground, and so on. So do you see what David is doing here? He's already appealed to God to answer his prayer because God is faithful and righteous, verse 1. But now he is also appealing to God to answer his prayer because he says in verse 3, I'm just really in a bad way. He appeals to God to answer him, in other words, because this is no small matter. This is no paper cut. This is no stub toe. This is the kind of difficulty in which, God, if you don't intervene, I will be completely beside myself. I'm asking you to answer me, God, precisely because my suffering is just that bad. And notice the same kind of appeal down in verse 7. Answer me quickly, O Lord, my spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, or I will become like those who go down to the pit. It's the same logic, isn't it? David is appealing to God now, not only because of who God is, but because of how badly David needs a God in these dire straits in which he finds himself. Simply because of how bad his own sufferings are, he's crying out. And that's not a bad reason to appeal to God in your prayers. To just honestly cry out to the Lord and to say, Father, I'm appealing to you, please, to hear my prayer because I just can't do this. I just can't take this. I don't know what will become of me, God, if you don't intervene. I'm appealing to you, God, simply because it's really that bad. Sometimes when the suffering in our lives is particularly acute, whether it be physical suffering or mental suffering, emotional suffering, sometimes when it's really bad, this may be the only sort of appeal that your staggering soul can think of. 
It's true, you should try in those moments to read Scripture and to remember the promises and to remember what your God is like, as David does in verse 1. And it's good if other people will help you do this when you can't think straight yourself. But sometimes, even in spite of all that, all you may be able to come up with is, God, I'm coming apart at the seams. Help me. Help me simply because I need help. Help me because if there was ever a time where I needed a God, tonight is the night. And I'm saying to you that if David prays that way, it must not be a bad way to pray. It may sound unspiritual at first, and there are other things perhaps that are more important, but it is the kind of desperation that we find in this psalm. And therefore, it is a worthy appeal to a God who cares about the suffering of his people. And you can pray this way, brothers and sisters. Answer me quickly, O Lord, my spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, or I will become like those who go down to the pit. God, consider the alternative if you don't help me. And don't let that happen to me. John Piper, in another one of his excellent biographical messages, this one on Charles Spurgeon, quotes a similar prayer to this one from the lips of Spurgeon, the great preacher. Spurgeon said at one point, When I was racked some months ago with pain to an extreme degree so that I could no longer bear it without crying out, I asked all to go from the room and leave me alone And then I had nothing I could say to God but this, Thou art my father, and I am thy child, and thou as a father art tender and full of mercy. I cannot bear to see my child suffer as thou makest me suffer. And if I saw him tormented as I am now, I would do what I could to help him and put my arms under him to sustain him. Wilt thou still lay on a heavy hand and not give me a smile from thy countenance? In other words, God, I'm suffering so bad, the main thing I can think to say to you is, if I had a kid who was suffering like this, I'd help him. Help me. And that's the same sort of spirit with which David prays here in verses 3 and 4 and 7. God, help me because my suffering is just so bad. And by the way, God answered Spurgeon's prayer so that he said that that particular racking pain never returned. And God heard David too so that he wasn't hiding either from Saul or from Absalom forever. And if you're his child, like David and Spurgeon were, then God will answer you too in his own time. So that was the third thing from Psalm 143. When he calls upon God to hear his prayer, David appeals to his own suffering. But then notice in the fourth place that David appeals also to God's past faithfulness. He appeals to God's prior faithfulness. Here in the middle of all these cries for help and all these grounds for God doing so, David pauses here in verse 5 for just a moment to reminisce, to remember God's works of old. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your doings. I muse on the work of your hands. Now, David may be musing here on God works, God's works of old in his own life. Maybe his victory over Goliath, perhaps some other later military conquest, or the time when he was able to bring the Ark of the Covenant back out of its obscurity, or, or maybe the way that he killed a lion and a bear as a boy out on the hillsides defending his sheep, and he's remembering how God helped him. Or it's possible he's pondering even older works of God that don't have to do with his life directly, 
but that he knows from the great stories of Scripture, his creation, God's creation of the world, maybe, or his calling of Abraham, or his rescue of Isaac on Mount Moriah, or his rescue of Israel from slavery in Egypt, or the exploits of one or other of the judges, and so on. But whatever it is that David has in mind, we know that he has a lot of material to work with, doesn't he? If he wants to remember the works of God from of old, to muse on the work of his hands. God has done great things ever since the beginning. And David muses on some of these things, and he does so, it seems to me, as another kind of appeal for why God should answer him now. God I'm sitting here thinking about all the great things you've done before. I'm thinking about that lion and that bear. I'm thinking about Goliath. I'm thinking about Moses and the Red Sea. I'm thinking about all of your deliveries in times past, verse 5. And now, in the present, verse 6, I long for you to do it again. Though there is no connecting word like therefore, Between verses 5 and 6, I do believe that the cries in verse 6 are likely grounded in the memories of verse 5. I believe that David is probably appealing to God in verse 6 to help him based on what he's been remembering in verse 5. God, I am like a parched land, verse 6. But I remember, verse 5, when the land was green. I remember when the rains used to come. I remember when your blessing was present. And so I stretch out my hands and I ask you to come and bless again. And again, I submit to you that this is a good way to pray. We don't always want to be looking to the past wistfully, wishing we could just go back there and therefore becoming ever more discontent or disconnected from the present. But to the extent that we can remember the past and God's blessing in the past so as to give us hope that the same God is able to help us today, then we're on steady ground. It's a good thing, in other words, when you pray and you remember how God helped Samson or how God prepared or spared, I should say, Isaac, or how God delivered Israel from Egypt, or how God answered the prayer of Hannah, or how God upheld Paul and Silas in the Philippian prison, or especially how God raised Jesus from the dead. It's a good thing to muse on God's works of old so as to gain confidence to ask him to do it again. You answered Hannah, Father, answer me. You helped Paul and Silas, Lord, help me. You raise Jesus, raise me. He may not always do it in exactly the same way, but he's the same God with the same power and the same commitments to his people. And it's a good thing, too, to remember God's works of old, not just in the scriptures, but the ones that he's brought about since the close of the canon of scripture as well. God, I've read about the courage of Polycarp. And I've, I've watched that film about the bravery of Perpetua. Give me courage. God, I, I know how you brought about the Great Awakening in this country in the 1700s. Revive us. Indeed, Lord, I remember times past when you answered such and such a prayer request in my life or when you brought a nick of time provision into my life and my family. And on the basis of what I remember about what you've done in the past, I'm appealing to you, do it again. Show yourself the same God in the present as you have marvelously been for us 
in days gone by. This is a good, a faithful, a faith-building way to pray. In his straits, David appeals to God's past faithfulness and asks him to demonstrate it once again. And then here's a fifth thing to notice tonight. David appeals also on the basis of his own faith. He appeals on the basis of his own faith. He asks God to hear him, in other words, simply because he is asking in faith. Listen to it three times in verses 8 and 9. Let me hear your loving kindness in the morning, for I trust in you. Teach me the way in which I should walk, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. I take refuge in you. Did you hear it? On what basis in these two verses does David appeal to God to teach him, to deliver him, to let him hear his loving kindness? For or because I trust in you. I lift up my soul to you. I take refuge in you. All three of which are the language of faith. And so David's appeal in verses 8 and 9 is that God should hear him simply because he believes. And that's just good theology, isn't it? All things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Matthew 21, 22. Or James chapter 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Put simply, God responds to believing prayer. And so David is completely correct to pray as he does here. Let me hear your loving kindness in the morning, for I trust in you. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. I take refuge in you. And the question is simply, can you pray that way? Can I pray that way? Do we trust God? Do we believe that he is God? Do we believe that he's powerful, that he cares, that he's able to answer, that he will answer in his own time and way? Do we believe that we will hear his loving kindness in the morning? whether on one of the mornings in this life or as we've been saying recently on that great and final morning when Christ, the Son of Righteousness, will rise with healing in its wings. Do you believe that God will hear and will answer you? Then you can pray with David, who when he cries out for deliverance, appeals to his own faith as a ground for God's answers. Let me hear your loving kindness in the morning, for I trust in you. And then there's one final sweet ground of appeal that David makes in this psalm as he cries out for God to hear, to give ear, to answer. And it's simply this, David appeals to God's covenant. David appeals to God's covenant. Now he doesn't use the word covenant here in this psalm, but this is the concept that he has in mind when he says in verse 10, teach me to do your will for you are my God. And then when he says in verse 12, destroy all those who afflict my soul, for I am your servant. 
Answer my prayers, in other words, for knowledge and for vengeance, but answer my prayers for or because you are mine, verse 10, and I am yours, verse 12. Answer my prayers because you are mine and I am yours. And that's the language of covenant. And it's one of the strongest concepts and one of the most beautiful themes in the Bible. That God has willingly bound himself to his people like a bridegroom to a bride so that they are his and he is theirs and therefore he will never forsake them. He will always be there for them and he has made a commitment to them such that he has bound himself to meet every need of their life forever. Not because he's beholden to us in and of ourselves, but because he has voluntarily made himself so through a covenant of promise, sealed in Emmanuel's blood, and as certain as God himself. So you think of those vows that a young man makes to his bride, to have her, to hold her, to love her, to cherish her, for better or worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. It's really a marvelous thing to behold, especially if you know that the young man is serious about what he's saying. What a glorious thing to be able to say to that woman, no matter what happens, I'm yours and you're mine. And I will live all the days of my life with that rock-solid commitment to you. And what's mine will be yours. And you will always have my ear and you will always have my heart. And I will do all in my power to meet every need of your life. And what an even more glorious thing when God is the one making the vows when God is the one entering into the covenant. And when you realize that because he is God, he doesn't have to speak about doing all in his power to meet your needs because he has all power and there's nothing that could ever be beyond his power. He just simply says, I will meet your needs. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And how marvelous when you realize that because God is the bridegroom, because your husband is your maker, there is no till death do us part in that covenant. Because this husband will never part and never die. And you, as a member of his bride, when you die, will not part from him, but actually be nearer to him than ever you were in this life. And so it's no small thing to be able to say with David, you are my God, verse 10. And to be able to say with him in verse 12, I am your servant. You are mine and I am yours. And you can appeal to God based on that reasoning, can't you? Just like a wife can appeal to her husband at any time just because he's her husband and she's his wife. Because he's hers and she's his. Because he made all those promises to her because they're joined together in covenant. She can appeal to him at any time. And so it is, Christian, between you and your God. It doesn't give you the right to be selfishly demanding, of course, but it does mean you always have the privilege of asking. You may always draw near with confidence to the throne of grace if you're in Christ. And you never have to wonder, like Esther, whether the king will extend his scepter to you. Because in this covenant, you know that he will. As H.W. Baker put it in his adaptation of the 23rd Psalm, the king of love, my shepherd is, his goodness faileth never. I nothing lack if I am his. 
and he is mine forever. That is the language of covenant. And that is the language of this psalm. I am his, verse 12, and he is mine, verse 10. And I hope that will be your language too whenever you appeal to God in prayer. Let me hear your loving kindness in the morning, for I trust in you. Teach me the way in which I should walk, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. I take refuge in you. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God.